No Belgian's ever going to press the nuclear button, are they? They're just, <laughs> they're just too ridiculous. nice. It'd be ridiculous. It might hurt the Luxembourgs. Luxembourgians? Yes. Luxembourgites? Oh, it's, it's Luxembourgeois. Luxembourgeois. I promise you. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> Luxembourgeois. So if you're from Luxembourg, I can call you a, a Luxembourgeoisie. I will be doing that at every possible opportunity if I ever meet someone from Luxembourg. <laughs> Have no fear of that. Hello, welcome to another episode of Revolutionary Dispatches. Me, Chris Bryant. And me, David Bryant. Uh, first item on the agenda is we have a government, mm. which is fun, fun, fun. Now, we'll get to the specifics of the deal between the Tory party and the DUP in a bit. But first of all, um, we're going to look at the Queen's speech yes. that Theresa May put forward. Um, for those who don't know, the Queen's speech is essentially, it does what it says in the tin, it's a speech given by the Queen at the state opening of Parliament, mm-hmm. but... It's effectively the programme for government, the things yeah. that the government wants to do whilst they are a government. It's written by the Prime Minister and her advisors, essentially, and the Queen just parents it, which is one of those interesting little quirks of British democracy. Mm. Uh, but yes, so usually the Queen's speech is the programme for government for one year, but this time around, it's going to last two. Mm. Uh, now, the reason that Theresa May and her government have given for that is that the Brexit negotiations are obviously supposed to last two years. Now, we've eaten up a fair bit of that time already, but yeah, yeah. Uh, basically the, the idea is that a two-year Queen's speech gives the government time to negotiate Brexit before having to go back to the House for what is essentially a vote, another vote of confidence in their leadership. So the idea is it will provide some sort of stability to these negotiations. Mm. Which is something that we're missing at the moment in our yeah. government. It's a coalition of chaos, David. <laughs> <laughs> no strong and stable leadership at all. Weak and wobbly. Yeah, weak and wobbly. So what what do you think to the old two-year Queen's speech, then? Well, I can see why they've gone for it, because it, it, it is the sort of situation where if it were to be the case mm. that the government didn't manage to pass its next Queen's speech partway through the Brexit negotiations, that would be very disruptive to a very important thing that we're trying to do at the moment, which would be the only reason for having another vote, which is essentially a vote of confidence in the government partway through, is because they might lose it. And it's arguably inappropriate that they should lose it in the middle of the negotiations. But at the same time, in a parliamentary system, the parliament has to be able to get rid of the executive mm. if they need to. Yeah, and the, and this is a government that is uh, more likely than most to lose a co- no-confidence vote. Yeah, so Theresa May knows that she's in a position where she's not secure as prime minister. She can't just necessarily wait for the next election um, and, and know that she's going to be in power for that whole time. So it it does look very convenient that, that she's found a reason why yeah. she shouldn't be subjected to the normal scrutiny of Parliament. Yeah, it is. It's it's another example of this government and sort of which is a trend which has uh, yeah yeah they've got a track record of this. Yeah, to be able to ignore Parliament and. Exactly. Um, I mean, the, the reason that Theresa May gave, as we spoke about before, for recording the election in the first place was that she wanted to be able to just railroad things through without any real opposition, was mm. essentially the sum of it. It is kind of disrespect for 
norms of the way democracy is done in this country is a bit worrying. Particularly from a party which calls itself conservative. <laughs> it's ironic that they seem to be the one tearing up these very, very old traditions. Hmm. Which, without a constitution, are the only thing we've got to rely on. Yeah, yeah, they are essentially the, the informal constitution which Britain works by. Hmm. Okay, so let's have a look then at um, the contents of Queen's Speech, which were a little thin, to say <laughs> the least. Uh, yes, in comparison to the uh, to the manifesto that they that they published. Yes. So it's, it's it's a little bit different to what happened last time round when the Conservatives in 2010 didn't get to implement their manifesto mm. when they published the coalition agreement with the Liberal Democrats, mm. which was just basically that they took most of the Conservative manifesto, bits of the Lib Dem manifesto, and mashed them together. Yeah, yeah. But this this is slightly different because, of course, the Queen's speech was on Wednesday, not long after we spoke last time, and at mm. that point the deal with, between the Tories and the DUP had not been completed. They were still negotiating, and, and mm. in fact, Theresa May got slapped down by Arlene Foster for suggesting that the deal was done uh, when the DUP clearly felt there was was more to talk about. Um, mm -hmm. And the DUP have a reputation uh, in Northern Ireland for being hard-nosed negotiators, and it looks like that's carried through. Um, so, of course, at the point when this Queen's speech was put forward, the government didn't actually know whether it would be able to carry any kind of working majority at all, mm. and I think that's contributed to quite a lot of the manifesto policies being missing. And there's a side point which I which is that I think that technically the government, even without the DUP, would have a working majority of like one, once you take into account Sinn Fein and the speaker and the two deputy speakers Three who deputies. are uh, sorry, yeah, um, who are all happen to be Labour MPs at the moment. I thought one came from the political party. Uh okay, not sure. Um I know John Burko was originally a Tory. I believe the convention is that one MP comes from the same party as the Speaker and then the other two come from the opposition. Oh, right, fair enough. But I, oh, not the opposition, but the other party. I could, I, yeah. That may not have happened this time. I don't actually know if the deputies mm. have been elected yet. Yeah, but in in any case, it would be, that would be not a, a, a majority that you can actually build a proper government on. No, if no, you've only got no, majority majority one. one. One so they do still yeah. absolutely need the DUP. Yeah. Okay. Right then. So yeah. So so some of the policies which have been uh, quietly dropped. Uh, one of the most important is grammar schools. Mm. Um, There's a certain amount of the grammar schools policy was always a bit of a token to the Tory rights. Yeah. Because really, what they want anyone who's serious about grammar schools, they think they're a really good thing and they want to bring them back this policy wasn't really going to do what they wanted. Because what you want to do, you don't just want there to be grammar schools. You want to change the education system as a whole so that grammar schools are an important part of it, that yeah. they're actually structurally, lots of people go to grammar schools. This policy would never really have increased the amount of actual grammar schools that much. Um, so we would still essentially have had what we have now, which is a comprehensive system with some grammar schools still floating around. There would just be more grammar schools. Mm. Yeah, it, it wouldn't have been a, a structural change to move us back to the system where everyone took 11 plus and then actually mm -hmm. passed and went on to grammar school because it was a different difference. Um, but, I mean, even the the limited policy has now been dropped. Yeah, yeah. In the face of quite significant opposition from large parts of the Tory party, mm -hmm. uh, including particularly uh, Michael Gunn, the former education secretary. 
Yeah, it's yeah. About the only education policy he, he is sound on, but you know, credit where mm-hmm. credit's due. He's a really interesting figure. He's he well, he's yeah. He was the one who, who talks about the Eton clique. He's not. I mean, he's a working class son of a fisherman, I think. Yeah, yeah. He's a working class Tory, but he has some interesting ideas. Hmm. By interesting, I mean largely weird. Although yeah, yeah. he apparently did uh, fairly well at justice. He just wasn't there that long. Oh, right. Yeah, I've heard that um, quite a lot of prison administrators and people like that are actually quite, and uh, kind of like criminal uh, defence lawyers and people like that are actually in favour of some of the reforms hmm. that he was supposed to be going through, but it just looks like nothing happened now. Yeah. Um, well, is... teachers hated him, so. Yes, but the t- teachers <laughs> absolutely despised him. So he's no good on education. Um, they have you, uh, had to drop the policy of scrapping universal free school meals. Um. Hmm. So that that sort of goes along with uh, quite a few other policies that they've had to drop. They've had to drop free school meals. They've had to drop the cuts to the winter fuel allowance. Yep. They've had to drop scrapping the triple lock. Yeah. They've had to drop the so-called dementia tax thing. So all those kind of go together along the lines of uh, cuts to the social welfare system that they were trying to bring in, building on what the Cameron government did. Yes. Um, I I wonder if that's the influence of the DUP because they're they're sort of very socially conservative, but they're not as sort of neoliberal as the as the Tory party is. Well, again, I think on on the the so-called dementia tax, I think that policy was you know it immediately torpedoed during the campaign, so that was going to be even if they won a stonking red majority. I think yeah, yeah, still would have dropped that policy just because it was so toxic, mm-hmm. particularly with their uh, they call it a rapid of. of of pensioners, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, who they were, you know, they were essentially firing a bullet at the one um, section of the population which can be counted on to reliably turn out the vote Tory in large mm. numbers. Um, but yeah, yeah that's, I, that's partly why they did it is because that they thought they're going to vote for us anyway, so we can do whatever we like to them. Fine, fine. Which backfired massively, but yeah, I mean, mm. this kind of slight softening of their anti-welfareism is, I think, yes, partially a sort of DP. Certainly the triple lock is. The Tories have not done all these cuts now. So they've somehow found a way to not do these cuts. So why were they doing them in the first place? The reason why they mm. gave to do them in the first place is because, oh, well, oh it's, it's, not, it's not nice that we've had to take things away from people, but it needs to be done at a time of economic whatever. Oh, apparently they don't need to be done because now they're leading a government that's not going to do it. Well, of course they don't need to be done. Any genuine wastage which existed in any department has been trimmed away long, long ago. Mm. You know, we've had seven years of fairly ruthless cuts, particularly to local government. Lots of them have been passed down the line, which is one of the reasons why local authorities in London have been really, really worried about the aftermath mm. of the Grenfell fire because they don't actually have the money to refurbish these towers and make them safe. If they yeah, are, yeah. do prove to be dangerous in the same way that Grenfell was, I actually, when I was up in London today, you drove past the building. Wow. And it's quite something. It's just completely black and gutted. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, sobering. Mm-hmm. Although people going on about their daily business in the shadow of it, so you, you yeah. it, there's some truth Human in beings the, are remarkably you can't resilient. keep London down kind of argument. Indeed, but yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, the cuts never needed to take place. But this shows it really explicitly, and it has sort of forced the Tories to um, to to admit to it implicitly. Um, and it doesn't seem like anyone's picking up on that. No, that's very true. 
Well, well done you for picking up on it. You've, you've, d- you've, you. done, you've d- done everyone a solid, David. Tor is out. Tor is out, indeed. indeed. <laughs> but yeah, so, so let's look at the Tory DUPO deal then, because, um, basically okay. what's happened with that is the Conservative Party have had to make several pledges to the DUP in order to acquire their support. One of mm-hmm. them was promising to maintain the triple lock on pensions. So yes. that particular piece of softening on their on their social security policy is definitely down to the DUP. There's also going to be an additional one billion pounds over the next two years to spend on infrastructure, healthcare and education in Northern Ireland. Now there was already going to be five hundred million of increased funds. Now it's gone up to one point five billion. Bearing in mind that the entire budget of Northern Ireland last year was ten billion. This is over two years. There's an additional billion over two years, which represents a five percent increase on the previous budget. That's it. It's a massive, massive increase. (laughs) I mean it's unimaginably huge when you consider the cuts that have been implemented across the UK um hmm. over the last few years. But suddenly there's 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 enough money for a five percent increase in the moment. Now again, the total budget of the UK is uh, over seven hundred and fifty billion a year. So in comparison to the whole UK government expenditure, this is a very small amount of money, or relatively small amount of money. But in comparison to Northern Ireland, it's huge and it just as you were saying earlier goes to show that there's clearly room for largesse when it backs, when it supports rather, the aims of the Conservative Party. You know, the fact that mm. the party in power can chuck around a billion quid of public money to keep hold of the power, which really the resounding implication of the last election was that most people aren't that keen on them having anymore, is a bit disgusting, I think. Mm. Right-wingers always do this. Well, here it was Margaret Thatcher. I don't actually know the figures about Margaret Thatcher, but in America with Reagan... Reagan expanded the U.S. budget deficit more than any post-war yeah. president, with his enormous increases in military spending and, and corporate subsidy and yeah. whatever. So all the rhetoric of that era was anti-state, we've got to do cuts, we uh, get the state out of the way of individuals who can whatever. Um, but those two expanded the state and expanded it more than any other leader of their time. All they did was they cut the bits of the state that actually helped people. And expanded the bits that help anyone who's already in a position of enormous. And power. Osborne was the worst for this. I mean, he was the worst chancellor in well over a hundred years in terms of or, worst, possibly not the right word, but he was certainly the most profligate borrower of any chancellor in well over a hundred years. Now, mm. if he was borrowing that money to actually do some good with, then that might well be fair enough, because as we know, yeah, yeah. most government um, projects, the 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 fiscal multiplier, that is, the amount of money you get back per pound you spend is over one pound. So most th- most pounds that the government spend have a positive return on investment. So if he'd been spending that money in sensible ways on infrastructure, healthcare, education, then it would have been worth it. But he clearly mm-hmm. didn't because there were massive cuts to most departments over that period. So where did all the money go? Well, a lot of it went on servicing mm-hmm. PFI debts, which <laughs> hung over from the, the <laughs> major and yeah. years. But that still doesn't account for a lot of it. And yeah. Huge amounts of borrowing and no real value to show for it. It is the case that, um, with the exception of the last couple of years of the of the of the last Labour government and that one minority Labour government back in the thirties that coincided with the Great Depression, 
every Labour government ever has paid down more debt than it's run up. Mm. So it's left the national debt smaller as a percentage of GDP than it was when they took over from the Tories. And that's not true of the Tories. <laughs> it's not even true of this Tory government. Particularly in 1945 to 1951, where, as a result of the Second World War, obviously mm. the, the national debt and deficit were both massive. And mm. Attlee managed to create the NHS, massively expand the welfare state, nationalise loads of key industries, and still pay down the debt and deficit quite significantly. Yeah, yeah. And b- build huge yes. numbers of council homes and... Indeed. In six years. Yeah. Yeah, six I years. mean, yeah. it just goes to show... We've had this yeah. government for seven years. And we've had no such radical transformation. Well, there's been a radical transformation, yeah. but it's been in the other direction. Yeah, yeah. So, um... Governments that help people. Forgotten about those. The right don't like them. They don't like it up them. <laughs> they just don't. So, along with the billion quid and the uh, maintenance of the triple lock, um, the Tories have also promised to extend uh, what's called the military covenant uh, to Northern Ireland. So, previously, the agreement that the government had with veterans as to how it would take care of them... Um, after they retired from the army, only applied in Great Britain. It didn't apply to Northern Ireland to avoid inflaming mm-hmm. tensions with the nationalists over, of course, the, the troubles, because most service people from Northern Ireland were stationed in Northern Ireland and could cause problems. That is now being extended to Northern Ireland, which, given the, the fact that the Tories are already working with the DUP, given the uncertainty over Brexit, given some fairly provocative language from the Irish government over... Brexit deal and possibly vetoing it if the pact with the DUP goes ahead, or at least is still in place by the time it's concluded. Um, given all that, it does seem a little provocative, and I think there is genuine concern that this could increase tension in Northern Ireland between the nationalist and unionist communities. Mm-hmm. Well, Sinn Féin have already made noise about that, about how they're concerned about the future of the mm. Good Friday Agreement, and and, and whatever, kind of understandably, because the mainland British, the UK, not UK, the Great British parties, have to not take a side in the partisan politics internal to Northern Ireland. It's difficult to see how the Conservative Party can remain that impartial when they're, they've got a confidence supply agreement with one of the major parties in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's in the Good Friday Agreement that the government must remain neutral. It's, it's also in the DUP deal, to their credit, that they will, both parties will, in Parliament, vote in line with every provision yes, of the Good Friday true. Agreement. And the DUP um, have also promised to support the Conservative Party on all Brexit legislation and anything to do with security. So this will mm. ensure that stability that Theresa May wanted um, over the next two years to guide through Parliament the process of Brexit, which is now likely to be a much mm. softer Brexit than she really wanted, although at least she proves the campaigning for who knows what she actually wants pretty much. <laughs> I think question at this point. But the, uh, the situation in the Northern Ireland Assembly is already quite unstable because of what's happened yeah. in recent years. Well, there's years. no government in Northern Ireland at the moment. Storm there isn't, no. Because yeah. Arlene Foster had some blunders. Yes. <laughs> Again, briefly for anyone who doesn't know, Arlene Foster was forced to uh, basically uh, Sinn Féin demand as she stepped down as First Minister of Northern Ireland after her involvement in a scandal whereby large amounts of money were spent on a loophole in some energy legislation which basically meant that people were being paid quite large sums of money to pointlessly heat with wood chip burners empty rooms. Sinn Féin demanded she stand mm. down, she refused, and so they resigned themselves. You were paid more subsidy the more 
fuel yeah, you exactly. wasted. And so they they would resign themselves. And because under the power sharing agreement, if you have a first minister who's a nationalist, you have to have a deputy who's a unionist and vice versa. Um, because of that, power sharing in Northern Ireland has collapsed. And so the government, the Northern Ireland government cannot function. And with this new pact between the Tories and the DUP, and with the fact that the current Northern Ireland secretary, James Brokenshire, is already viewed with deep suspicion by the nationalists, uh, particularly by Sinn Féin, it's very difficult to see how they're going to get any kind of government up and running again in mm. the short or even medium term, which is concerning, definitely concerning. Yeah, that showed up in the in the in the uh, general election where the um, Ulster Unionists and the uh, SDLP lost a, a most, if not all, of mm. their seats to the DUP and Sinn Fein. So the the more hardline party on each side is doing yes. well now. That shows that sectarian tensions are becoming more coming to the yeah. surface more. And now we've got this deal whereby the Good Friday Agreement's in a certain amount of uncertainty. That's that's a, that's a very bad move. We're young enough, mm. you and me, Chris, that um, we we haven't properly lived through a period of history when Northern, Northern Ireland isn't at relative yeah. peace. Um, but it would be quite bad if that came to an end. There's there's a possibility that it might go the other way, though. The um this extra billion pounds for Northern Ireland, that could help smooth things over in the functioning of the Northern Ireland Assembly. If there's more plentiful resources, the different parties aren't having to uh, sort of be at each other's throats over over scarce resources quite as much. That might mean that there can be more concessions given on both sides if both sides have less to lose because there's more money floating around. Well, that's a possibility, certainly. It, it really depends. But of course, if they, if they can't get power sharing back up and running... Um, then that money will be spent by the UK central government on Northern Ireland's behalf anyway. Um, and then yes, it, yeah, yeah. It, it kind of depends how it's spent. Yeah, pe- people are more angry if they're living in a scarce environment. So the reverse of that is also true. If they're more well provided for, then that can mm. ease tensions. Yes. Hopefully. Hopefully. There's so, also, um, to turn... Slightly away from Northern Ireland, there's also the angle that, with an increase of funds for Northern Ireland, uh, the rest of the UK, particularly Wales and Scotland, are going to be a little upset that there's no increase for them. Uh, there have been people mm. talking about the Barnet formula, um, which is the, the current method of deciding, um, or at least the baseline for deciding how much money Wales and Scotland are given in the block grant, which is made from the UK central government to the devolved governments in those countries. Um, it, the thing is, it doesn't apply to Northern Ireland, the Barnet formula, and North, an increase in funds for Northern Ireland doesn't actually affect the Barnet formula really in any way, so or in any meaningful way. So this talk about it is a bit disingenuous, but it speaks to a kind of underlying truth that people in Wales and Scotland are likely to feel and in England as well, but particularly Wales and Scotland because, and particularly Scotland because of the, the high support for the nationalists there, are likely to feel hard done by if the Northern Irish seem to be getting uh, extra money that they themselves aren't. I mean, a 5% increase in budget. Well, they are getting extra money. Yeah, exactly. But Scotland and Wales aren't. <laughs> and a 5% increase in budget, as we said, is significant. And I'm sure the Scots and Welsh would quite like that as well. As would we English. Lads. As would we, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, there's, there's, there's much an English NHS hospital or or local school could do with a 5% budget increase. 
Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's or even with just that flat number of a billion pounds extra for the English NHS. I mean, would be... I'd take it, yeah. <laughs> considering that it's been held at below one percent real terms increase for the last seven years, when it <laughs> needs four percent minimum in order to function because of an aging population. Yeah, yeah I, any money would do. I mean. A couple of quid down, you find down the back of the sofa, yeah. could, would probably be eagerly accepted at this point. It's got that bad. Yeah, so that's really the Tory DUP deal in a nutshell. Uh, the UK has also pledged to continue spending its 2% on defence, yes. which is already a commitment under the Northern Magic Treaty anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. So that's just that we are going to fulfil the obligation that is required as a NATO yes. member. A lot of NATO members don't do no, it. No, that's very true. Uh, we are very good about our obligations of the NATO in a way that a lot of European countries aren't. Britain, France and America are the the ones in NATO who actually have sizable militaries. Yeah. Uh, there's just one more thing about the DUP deal, which is that there's going to be what they're calling a coordination committee between the two parties, which means that the DUP will be sort of not not in coalition like the Lib Dems were, but they won't be just a normal opposition party but that has also got, had this deal signed. There's going to be special communication between the two parties where they coordinate on formation of policy and things for the whole length of the parliament. So they can continue to have influence rather than just the influence that they've managed to secure here being implemented. They can continue to press the government for things. So it's possible that more DUP influence will become clear that isn't in this deal right. as as time goes by. And that's for the whole of the next two years because of the extended life of the parliament. Yes, yeah. So that's quite interesting. I didn't realise that. Right. Hmm. And then, of course, in two years' time, when the DUP come to renegotiate that agreement, if the Tories are still in power, which is not necessarily likely, but if they are, hmm. um, if we haven't had another election by then, then, of course, they'll be back for more. In the meantime, though, hmm. um, they're committed on confidence and supply, so votes of confidence, Queen's Speech, budget measures, and then also on anything to do with Brexit or security. So there will at least be a modicum of stability. We do have a functioning government um, yes. for the next two We're years. not Belgium. We're not Belgium, although Belgium did all right with their 14 months of no government. Yeah, yeah, they were fine. It was, <laughs> And then, of course, America had no government for 14 days, and the bomb nearly fell out of the global economy. So it just goes <laughs> to show, really, um, <laughs> let the Belgians get on with it, I say. Yes. You should have a, a, a Belgian president of the United States. It might not go down too well, but it'd be a dance like more stable than Trump, I should think. Right. Well, we've got all of the um, UK sort of high politics, at least, out of the way early on. So, let's turn to France. Back again. And uh, uh, a smaller story, but an interesting one. In the aftermath of the Front National's relative failure in the legislative elections, in which they secured only eight seats, which is up six from their previous two, but is still far less impressive than they were hoping. Given that a few weeks ago they were they were looking at possibly having the presidency and a majority on the parliament. Exactly. Um, so Emmanuel Macron's defeat of Jean, of uh, Marine Le Pen, rather, has translated into a smashing majority, as we discussed last week. Le Pen's party didn't do very well, and her father, the party's founder, and sort of their kind of slightly irascible 
uncle they try and keep under cover when they can, but who often breaks free of his chains and starts shooting his mouth off in unwelcome places. Jean-Marie Le Pen. Yeah, that's a slight understatement. He's a he's a massive anti-Semite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they're all massive anti-Semites. Incredibly it's racist. It's just Jean-Marie Le Pen will yeah. say it in public. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, the others have got a bit more a bit more media savvy over the years. They're sort of like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, we mustn't we mustn't say that in public. I don't know why I'm doing a posh English accent for the French people, but we'll go with it. <laughs> Whereas Jean-Marie Le Pen is quite happy to just go full Nick Griffin as and when required or asked yeah, by any yeah. tabloid. So anyway. Jean-Marie is out of his cupboard, and he's asked, or so rather, told in print, Marine Le Pen, his daughter, who he does not have a particularly close relationship with these days, that she should step down as leader of the Front National over the result. Well, she kicked him out of the party. She did, yes. For making his most recent, or second most recent, Holocaust denial, I believe. He has been charged with Holocaust denial on at least two occasions, I believe. And has said it more than that. But, but yeah, he is a convicted Holocaust denial. And massively awful person. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, so the, the, the fascists are in fighting, which I always like to see. Um, that was really the main reason I brought it up, to be honest, just to have something funny to talk about, because I always <laughs> like to see the far right poking each other. Um, but there is an interesting point to be made about the, the kind of interesting dynamic within the Front National, which is that they are sort of a family outfit. I mean, Jean-Marie Le Pen is the founder, yeah, yeah. his daughter Marine is the current leader, and her niece, whose name momentarily escapes me, uh, is being widely tipped as the next leader after Marine Le Pen does step down, whether she does it now or not. I don't think she's likely to. Hmm. So, yeah, I suppose he's not being all that unreasonable that the leader of a party, or a person who was the presidential candidate for a party, hmm. who then loses the presidency and then doesn't do very well in the upcoming... The, the the following uh, legislative election mm. in a way that people weren't expecting them to. People were expecting them to do quite well. They did much worse than expected. It's relatively standard practice for that leader to then step down. Yes. Although I uh, possibly should be mentioned that Marine Le Pen was elected. Uh, she's one of the eight um, oh, FN really? representatives and uh, I believe it was the first time she was elected to the legislature. So she is now uh, uh, a member of the National Assembly, a French MP, essentially. But, um, so we haven't seen the last of them. No, no. Even if she does step down as leader, as leader of the party, which, as I say, I don't think she will. Um, but even if she does, she'll still be floating around a bit. Hmm. But yeah, of all of these, um, uh, the this sort of new right populism types that you've had, you've had Farage, you've got Wilders, you've got Trump, you've got whatever. She seems to be the most authentically sort of uh, economic protectionism, nationalism. France for the French maintain the French welfare system. Sort. I mean, she is she is what you would call a proper national socialist. She is a yeah she yeah is, she is an yeah. old an old style fascist. Um, in the yeah. in the kind of sort of not even really Hitlerite model, but more 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 of a kind of slightly less mad Mussolini. Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of an, an analogous to like the Ernst Röhm faction in the Nazi party. Um, hmm. Before, yeah, or, or what? Um, uh, what the uh, Oswald Mosley would have been? Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. That's that's a much better comparison. I don't know. <laughs> thank you for thank you for that. I was right. reaching around Mussolini. No, no, Rome. Mm, sort of. Aha. Yes, Mosley. Exactly. Yes. British Union of. Fans. She is the French Oswald Mosley. 
with slightly less of a moustache. Um, yes. But yeah. Which is sort of, I can't, I can't tell which one I'd prefer. <laughs> would I prefer, would I prefer an actual Nazi or a Nazi with more, who's got the same racism and, 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 and authoritarianism, but with, without the commitment to the welfare state, which means they're not a proper Nazi, but. I really don't know. I suppose, I suppose just by logic, if you have someone who is very, very right wing on social policy, but who is kind of centrist on economics, uh, advocating a mixed economy and protectionism and that kind of thing, um, they are by definition better than someone who's right wing on both. Hmm. Just by default. But that does then kind of sound like I'm saying I prefer Hitler to Trump, which I'm not sure I'd do, yeah. although I wouldn't fancy either. Well, to be fair, in in the sense in which they're both bad, Hitler was worse. Yes. Hitler was more of a racist that, than Trump. That is true. I think I think it's reasonable to say that. Yeah, but the fact <laughs> we're having to dis- even discuss the concept that Hitler might not be quite as racist as the current president of the United States of America oh, is a bit wrong. <laughs> but yeah, no, Trump, Trump's not Hitler. No, Trump is not as racist as Hitler. That we know of. I mean, he may well be uh, even more virulently racist in his pri- private moments, although he doesn't seem to have many of those. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say he doesn't. I don't think he's capable of hiding that no, sort of thing. You're quite right. Um, but yeah. So anyway, back to the original point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So interesting infighting uh, between Marine, Marine Le Pen and her father Jean Marie, which I love to see because mm. it's always good when fascists bash each other. It saves us having to do it. Um, yes. <laughs> although we will continue to repeatedly. Oh yeah, yeah. We've... Richard Spencer. Every time, every time I see that gift, ah, oh, <laughs> shivers down the spine. Shivers down the spine. <laughs> right. Well, we'll move across the pond to everyone's favourite emerging right-wing dictatorship, the United States of America, the other free world. Uh, <laughs> so depressing. There, 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 the free world, there were always imperialist nutcases. Um, yeah, yeah. So, this is a story which has got basically zero attention in UK media, largely because we've been distracted mm-hmm. by our own massive chaos over Brexit yes. and the most recent election. But, I don't know that I don't know that it's got that much attention in America either. No, I don't think it has. Um I am a nerd, and I'm particularly I'm a nerd when it comes to politics, and I listen to yes, the five thirty eight politics podcast every week. Uh <laughs> with uh Nate Silver, um who's the editor in chief and various other people. You're advertising our competition. Uh it's it's not our competition. You can listen to them both. <laughs> in fact, if I was to recommend any two podcasts other than this one, which you should of course continue listening to. I would say hmm. on politics this is definitely Nate Silver, uh, Five Thirty Eight Politics Podcast, and the New Statesman Podcast are very good as well. No, no, they this are very good. <laughs> but yeah, so there have been a series of special elections, which is the U.S. equivalent of a, of a uh, roughly of a by-election, election. yeah, um, for the House of Representatives, which is the lower house in America, equivalent to the House of Commons. In recent days, now the first one was on April the eleventh, and the most recent one. Most recent two were on June the 20th. In all but one of these elections, the Republican candidate won. However, in all four cases where the Republicans won, they were 
the incumbent. And on the fifth case, where the Democrats were the incumbent, they retain the seat. But, hmm. but, but by a much bigger yes, margin. Yes, this is the point. In every single one of these five special elections, the Democrats have beaten what 538 call the partisan lean. Now, this is a little bit esoteric. It gets into um, the mechanics of political science. But essentially what they do is they take a balance of the last two elections in each district and the vote for the Republican and Democratic candidate for president in those districts. And they weight them 75% for the most recent election and 25% for the previous. To take into account that the, the previous election is still relevant, but obviously the most recent one is, is, a, is a better predictor. This is what they use as what they call the partisan lean. What you would expect um, that district to do relative to national polling, basically. So they work out, okay, if the national polling has the Republicans a 2% lead, this district has a partisan lead of 4%, so we'd expect a Republican candidate in this district to get 6%. On this measure, the Democrats have beaten the partisan lean every time, mostly by quite significant margins. We are talking, in some cases, uh, particularly in the case of uh, Kansas 4th District, they beat it by more than a 20% margin. Uh, 20% point margin, um, which is really significant. So although they've only won one of the five, and it was the one they held already, all four of the ones they lost, they came a lot closer to winning than they should have, really, mm. given um, that they were running in fairly red districts. Red meaning Republican in the uh, US context, rather than communist. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because in America the two parties switched in the fifties. Yeah, so they have the wrong colours. They, they should switch back to make it simpler. But and also, liberal in America means left. It doesn't anywhere else. Yeah, it's yeah. Kind of... In everywhere else, it means yeah. centrist. In America, it means left. Yeah. It's really annoying. Anyway, although I suppose <laughs> it makes a certain amount of sense in that the left in America is what we would call centrism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, fairly, like, Bernie Sanders kind of left as well, you know, is a relatively mainstream social democrat yeah. by European standards. Yeah. Well, he's sort of a borderline social democrat liberal. Yeah, really. exactly. He's sort of, you know... We should have universal health care. Really? Yeah, <laughs> yes, we should, Bernie. But tell us more. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so, anyway, I thought it was worth... Yeah. So, what actually are the states? So, there's the states that have had these uh, elections, so we've had uh, Kansas 4th, uh, Montana at large, California 34th, South Carolina 5th, and Georgia 6th. So the Democrats kept hold of California 34th, as we would expect them to do. California's a very blue state. That's a very blue district. Uh, previously, they were on plus 70. So the partisan lean would see them at around plus 70, and they got yeah. plus 70. So people think of California as being an extremely blue state, but the, it's that's because it's it's coastal metropolitan areas are extremely blue and that's where almost all of the population exactly. is but large areas of the state are actually much more like uh, the rest of the rocky mountains which is very rural very uh, republican that yeah that is true but in terms of like most of the population it's quite blue. so yeah so so the other four are republican districts but the democrats have beaten the partisan lean in all of those districts quite soundly this would seem to suggest that they are on for a very good year uh, at the midterm elections which are next mm. year, uh, at the end of next year. And even in absolute terms, all of the uh, the, the red states 
have come very close to the Democrats yeah. winning it. It's not just that they've beaten the margin. It's not just that they've increased their vote share by mm. a lot. They've increased it by very nearly enough to flip the, the, the Yeah, district. they were within, I think, uh, six points in all of them. And I think uh, South Carolina fifth with only a two-point Republicans came very close to mm. flipping. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's very significant. Um, and it really, really does look like if all else remains equal, which is never likely in American politics, but assuming the current mm. trend continues, and remember, President Trump is very, very unpopular. Um, lowest uh, approval ratings for a president at this point in their premiership. I, I, in, I don't know how long, but certainly in modern times. He, he is the most unpopular president, uh, sorry, uh, politician in America at yeah. the moment. But the second most unpopular pre- uh, politician in America is Hillary Clinton. <laughs> the most popular politician in America is Bernie Sanders. Which tells you what he is. <laughs> but yeah, so so the the Democrats are looking like they will make gains, possibly significant gains, in the House of Representatives at the midterms next year. Um, possibly enough to flip the House. Now, if that happens... It, yes, not- which is unusual. The The Republicans have a an inbuilt advantage in the House of Representatives with the way the districts are drawn yeah. and whatever. Hugely gerrymandered in America. Yeah, much worse than men. Much, much worse. Because they don't have an independent commission. Um, hmm. So, yeah, so this is big news, really, because it means that the top, the clock is ticking, really, on any Republican legislation that we want to get through. Really has hmm. to be done, not just by the midterm elections, but because people will be gearing up for those midterm elections, um, uh, for the campaign, that adds an extra level of urgency. I mean, really, any serious legislation they really need to get through by the end of this year, because most of next year mm. will be devoted to a ratcheting up of campaigning for the midterms. Mm. Um, there's also a possibility they might make some some gains in the Senate. Um, one <coughs> one in particular, um, a Nevada senator uh, called Dean Heller, who is uh, up for re-election in the and he, of the senators who are up for re-election, because only a third are elected every two years, re-elected every two years. Of those senators, he is the Republican in the most democratic state. Um, so it's looking like they might make significant gains in the House and maybe maybe a senator. Yes, because because of the demographic shifts, because there's getting to be more Latino people in particularly states that are near the Mexican border. States that are traditionally considered very Republican, places like Utah and Colorado and, and, and Nevada and whatever, are getting... And, and Texas. Yeah, oh, yeah. Actually, Te- Texas is getting Are getting popular. more and more um, uh, Democrats yeah. in them because uh, Latinos tend to vote Democrat. Particularly with Trump. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's another angle, which is that... Um, uh, Trump's very unpopular, so that's probably what's driving a lot of this. But sort of um, liberals being very, very unhappy <coughs> with Trump, that can pretty much explain what's happened in California. But in the other ones, in, in uh, well, the other four states, Montana, mm. Kansas, South Carolina, and Georgia, those are really, really strong Republican yeah. states. But the Democrats are managing to appeal to those voters yeah. anyway. So... I think this might be Bernie, because he has the ability to... He's the kind of Democrat who can appeal to that kind of working-class white voter who 
the the Democrats have struggled to get on board, even though they're um, it's obviously much more in their interest to have a Democrat than a Republican. In most cases, because yeah, 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 because um, yeah, he's had this campaign that he's calling the Justice Democrats, mm. which is um, to try and get Bernie Sanders-style Democrats yeah. um, elected in primaries and whatever, so that they can run. It's sort of a little bit like um, momentum here. There was a feeling just... in uh, one of the elections, particularly in Georgia 6, that the candidate that the um, Democrats did put up, a guy called Ossoff, um, because oh, yes, he was such a kind of tradi uh, not traditional, but uh, a Democrat more in the Hillary Clinton role, um, there's a feeling that that's part of the reason why they didn't win it, because they were expecting yeah. to win that, or they were expecting it was in play. Um, if they were going to win any of these four, they, would, they thought it would be George Six. Whereas actually, they came closer to winning South Carolina fifth, which was not what they were anticipating at all. And there's a, there was a lot of feeling among the left wing Democrats in particular that had they run a more Bernie-ish candidate in that seat, they could have won it. They could have won it rather. Mm. Um, Very likely, Bernie would have yeah, won. It's like he genuinely would. Yeah. And so. So all of this is pointing towards, as I said, really the death knell on any significant legislation the Republicans want to get through, which is probably why they are rushing uh, their repeal and replacement in inverted commas of the ACA of Obamacare, the kind of Medicaid mm -hmm. slash insurance expansion that Obama passed in his first two years. Um, that's being really rushed through at the moment. And to bring it back to Dean Heller, it's no coincidence that he, who is, as I mentioned, the senator most likely to fall to the Democrats, the Republican senator most likely to fall to the Democrats at the 2018 midterms, he has come out quite strongly against the Senate bill um, to to right, partially yeah. repeal and replace Obamacare. Um, so Republicans in marginal districts tend to be less hardline. Yeah, yeah, particularly him. I mean, he's basically said that he won't vote for it regardless. And the Republicans only have a majority of two in the Senate. So if three Republicans vote against it, the bill dies. And mm. Heller's already said no. Rand Paul's already said no. Right. Heller's a moderate to the party's left, and Rand Paul is a libertarian to the party's right, so it's impossible... Sort of. Sort, yes, sort of. But it's, so it's basically... He's not as good as his no, dad. That's very true. But it's basically impossible to please both of them at once. If you tack towards Paul, yeah, yeah. you'll piss off Heller. And if you tack towards Heller, you'll annoy Paul. So, basically one of those is going to vote against the bill, whatever they do, and they can only afford two more defections. And I believe there are a group of maybe six senators who are considering voting no. So there's every chance that the Republican healthcare bill could be scuppered. And it's going to be partly down to how well the Democrats are doing in these special elections. And the fact that Republicans in marginal seats are worried that they're going to lose them. I think what this speaks to is the, the principle that it's really important to remember, which is that who gets the headline of they've won the election isn't the end of the no. fight. If, if With this and the DUP deal, when Theresa May is still the Prime Minister, right? but because it was so marginal, because of the nature of what's happened, and because of the backlash that's continued since the election, she's had to drop most of her programme. 
with this because even though Trump's still the president and the Republicans still control a majority of state legislatures, they have a majority of governors, they control both houses of Congress, but because of the resistance that's still being put up against them nonetheless, um, they're having to they're having they're having trouble passing all of the terrible things that they're trying to pass. So this idea of even if there's not an election on, it's still really important to participate in politics and get involved. You can, and you, th that can have a real effect, is really important. Yeah. And this shows it really plainly. This idea of movement politics is in the zeitgeist at the moment. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very important. I mean, momentum um, during the election were massively helped out by uh, a bunch of volunteers from the Bernie Sanders campaign, which was obviously unsuccessful, mm. but a number of volunteers who had been on the ground organising for that had come over and sort of ran training sessions for momentum experts who then went out to push for a labour vote. So this kind of movement politics on, on in America as well as Britain and elsewhere actually mutually reinforce it. Um, and and this oh, wouldn't it be good if we did that with Podemos? It would be brilliant. And Saritza as well. Saritza have the problems over at Cipras, but there are. Yeah, yeah. And Melanchon and whatever. So there are movements out there in various countries in what you would call, you know, the developed world, also in, in the rest of the world as well. But, but even in those countries which are seen to be kind of under the grip of the IMF led kind of neoliberal, um, mm. policy program which has been put out since the end of the seventies, there are these big emerging left wing movements and they are beginning now communicate across oceans even um, and this mm. kind of solidarity between parties in different countries is exactly what we need to build in order to a move the entire world towards socialism b avoid damaging ruptures in the international scene like brexit in the future and and see you know sort of in individual countries to really, really help to get individuals and, and groups elected because we can share expertise and, and share um, organisational capability. Hmm. And it works on specific issues as well, if, you, if you're um, campaigning for something or whatever. So this is something that happens often when there's a protest. People say, well, what's the point of that? It's not going to achieve anything. But sort of like one protest doesn't. But protests are a really important part of a proper sort of background social movement that isn't necessarily a political party but might support certain political parties and have a political wing and that can have an effect so um with the big movements that were uh, taking place against ttip and the tpp mm. i can't see how without those either um holland or uh, trump would have gotten rid of those if they if there hadn't been enormous pressure yeah for it from the population. So the reason why Trump went for I don't like the TPP is because it sounded good and it played well with his audiences and that was only happening because of this movement that had been going for years beforehand. To demonstrate how dangerous these international common hmm. trade deals are. Yeah. And and uh, another historical example is that uh, Richard Nixon, who is an old-fashioned southern racist, he's one of the bad Republicans, he wasn't Eisenhower, but he was uh, forced by the strength of all of the social movements around him, by the hippies, by the civil rights movement, by the whatever, 
um, to pass some really quite good healthcare legislation. And environmental legislation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a quote from FDR, probably America's best uh, modern president, um, which is he was uh, he was he was in a meeting with some kind of union leader. And they put before him some kind of legislation for workers' rights or social welfare or something like that. And he read it and said, yeah, this is a really good piece of legislation. Now, go out and make me pass it. Because he knew that he wouldn't be able to get it through Congress unless he could say, I have to do this. These guys are forcing me to. that's really how the New Deal was put in place. Um, because mm. the threat of the organised left in America, the trade union movement, but also under the Communist Party, which at that time was very strong, Particularly on mm -hmm. the East Coast, where a lot of the polit you know, political elites were, um, the threat of those groups actually moving and taking power was real. There was a real fear that the Russian Revolution would happen in America, and it was only using that as a threat that FDR was able to convince uh, political elites and also business elites to to acquiesce to the passing of the New Deal. Now, you can argue the toss as to whether a chance of a proper socialist revolution would have been worth passing up the certainty of the New Deal. You know, that, that's a task yeah, yeah. which you can argue on r slash socialism to your heart's content, and then you still do. <laughs> again, and again, and again, and again, and again. But that was how that happened. And without that pressure, FDR wouldn't have been able to pass the Or at least, no, it's well, there's partly a there's partly a historical thing, which is that the um, the parts of the labour movement that, that survived the Second World War, because um, in the bits of... Europe that did get conquered by the Nazis, it got severely damaged, and a, a large number of its people were just murdered, and it's all of its organisation was gotten rid of. So, the union movement in those bits of the world that remained free of Nazi control in Britain and America and whatever, essentially decided to throw in their lot with the sort of uh, liberal bourgeois capitalists to come to an agreement where they would join forces to get rid of fascism in exchange for uh, um, giving them some kind of welfare concessions so that we get this post-war social democratic um, uh, agreement. So the, the the labor movement gave up to a large degree on its, um, uh, its, its wholesale opposition to liberalism and conservatism in exchange for being able to get rid of fascism yeah. and have some concessions in the post-war period. And I can understand that. It, it, it wasn't just, uh, do we want the New Deal or do we want to risk socialism? There's also this aspect of, uh, and we can't risk falling to fascism either. Right, so a couple of smallish stories to end on. Um, smallish in, in kind of size of what we can discuss, not necessarily important. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there was a very worrying thing in Canada, Turkey, um, the other day, mm. which was that um, this was uh, article on June the twenty third, I think. Um, and basically, Turkish minister uh, in the government um, of uh, pronounce his name, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, I believe, that may be mm. butchering it. Sorry to any Turks in the audience, but um, who is the kind of increasingly authoritarian leader of Turkey? One of his ministers said that that evolution is going to be removed from 
Turkish secondary schools. Um, at present, it is not taught to the same degree it is taught uh, in, for example, a British school. Um, there is opposition, certainly, from Muslim clerics in, in Turkey and in many other Muslim countries, and many places is stronger. Um, Turkey is still relatively secular, but there is an opposition to teaching it from clerics in certain quarters because they see it as antithetical to the teachings of the Quran. Um, but previously, Turkey has been a validly secular country. Um, mm. Now, since it was founded, since it was founded, it was founded in the principle of secularism uh, by Kemal Ataturk. Now, it's really looking worrying that. The or what already looked like an authoritarian shift in Turkey is really taking on the colours of an Islamist um, dictatorship, mm -hmm. um, and the removal of revolution from secular schools is, I think, is symptomatic of that movement, um, which is anti-constitutional and was part of what sparked the attempted coup in Turkey a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. but. Yeah, it's very concerning. Um, the denial of science in education. It would seem to me that Erdogan is showing himself to be sort of. So we've got this phenomenon that's happening in the West of Trump, Le Pen, Farage, Johnson, Gert Wilders, whatever. But it seems like there are the the same thing is happening outside of the West as well. It's happening worldwide. There are people in on on sort of. In uh, in Turkey with Erdogan, there's also uh, Modi in India. Oh. He's been uh, pushing a sort of Hindu nationalist um, uh, uh, thrust to his rhetoric recently. It's like the hundred million weapons deal with Trump. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's he's um, he's had a state visit to America, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, bought loads of drones. Very powerful with Trump. Trump. Palestinians, if they try anything, yeah. Mm. Yeah, but Modi's a really good Not example of this, which is that. Yeah, <laughs> which is that. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of neoliberal globalization that we've had um over the last few decades. The backlash to that is 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 starting to um manifest itself in this movement that we've been talking about of of anti uh, TPP in in Bernie Sanders in in uh Jeremy Corbyn in in Syriza in Podemos in whatever. But there's also this other um thing that's trying to define itself as um as opposing globalization, but it's opposing itself not in the same in a very very different kind of a way. It's trying to juxtapose globalism with nationalism. But Modi and the others, to an extent, but Modi is a really good example of how um, sort of a cultural nationalism doesn't necessarily mean that you're actually resisting any of the content of being under the control of a global capitalist system any more than you would be if you had this kind of multicultural system either. No. I, I think Erdogan uh, tried sort of uh, making more of a thing of um, of sort of cultural Islamism and hearkening back to Ottoman ideas is a part of that, whilst also not being... He's hardly a social democrat. No. No, what Erdogan is, as you say, he's, he's, he's a sultan. A sultanist figure. He is consolidating his uh, <coughs> personal political control in Turkey, and he is using 
kind of Islamist ideology in order to do that. But you're right, he has no intention of rolling back the neoliberal principles of working Turkey. In fact, he's increasing the neoliberalization of Turkey in many ways. Because he's just as happy to affect strip the country as any American or British or Russian or whatever. Um, mm. Multi-billionaire entrepreneur. No, he just wants a cut for himself. And in order to do that, he's using Islamist ideology to to centralise. And he obviously he's increased his term beyond the constitutional limit and all these kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it's definitely worrying when, in particular, when emerging dictators start fiddling with schools, because damaging yeah, the, the, yeah. the education base of the country um, does so much damage, not just for the present but for the future. Um, you know, a whole generation of Turkish school children are now going to grow up not learning anything about evolution. I mean, mm. they go on to um, study, to further study at um, college and university, then and if they study biology, then they'll be taught it there. But if, that, you know, most kids don't go on to study biology at, at mm. further education, you know, even, you know, even the vast majority of people who go on to university won't study biology. So having this whole generation of Turkish school kids who are now going to grow up ignorant of this really important theory, um, in theory in the scientific sense of it's bloody true. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Until you can disprove it. Theory in the sense of it is in the realm of the theoretical. Yes. That doesn't mean it's not certain. Yes. It just means that it's a an explanation rather than simply an observation. But not to know that for Antonio is really dangerous. And once you've also once you've revealed your evolution, it's then you then get culture creep. You know, what will be next to you? Um, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. World science can't afford to have Turkey not pulling its weight. Well, exactly. Exactly. We, we need all the help we can get now that the US is basically out. Come mm. on, lads. No. <laughs> Muck in. And we're pulling out the EU. Oh, so. yeah. Can you sort of remind me? Sorry. Every so often, I, 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 you sort of talk about the EU in the abstract, and then every so often, I think, oh, yeah, they're putting out Eurotom, putting out all the science program, putting out like, yeah, everything. Yeah. I think we'll still be in CERN, though. I think we will still be in CERN. The, the Centre for European Research Nuclear. Yes. Because it's French. It's French. Nuclear. But yeah, I'm in Switzerland, but it's CERN, obviously. It's like non EU countries. I think, yeah, yeah. I think we will still be in CERN. Um, we might have to renegotiate our membership, though, because I'm pretty sure we're a m- member of CERN on the basis that we are EU members. Mm-hmm. So I think even even those bodies which we mi- wish to ret- uh, retain membership of, I believe in a lot of cases will have to be renegotiated or re- reapplied yeah, yeah. for admission because we are in on the basis of our EU membership, not any other reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that yeah, they'll turn us away, so because. Britain's quite important. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But still. Yeah. But leaving the EU is a really complex thing. It is very, very complex. Really hard to do. And so is joining it, which is why Erdogan stopped trying. Um, Yes. (laughs) Which is another shame, because I think there's a real possibility that if if he was able to, to, or if Turkey was able to move to join the EU more quickly than it was, um, then possibly this shift towards authoritarian dictatorship wouldn't have been so easy or so possible. And really the only thing... Although once it's started, then it works the other way. Yes. If you're shifting towards an authoritarian dictatorship, that means you can't join the no, EU. No, of course. Well, the, the, Turkey, the reason Turkey couldn't join the EU 
initially the main Armenians, they would refuse to recognise the Armenian genocide. Um, right. Because yeah. you can't have, because obviously <clears throat> one of the conditions of being a EU is kind of about the Holocaust, and if you can't remember the Holocaust, that's extended to other genocides as well. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they couldn't join really on that basis. I mean, the fact that most of Turkey isn't actually technically in Europe was not really that much of a problem for most people. You know, There's 3% of it in Europe, so that's enough. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. We're grand. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be fine. Istanbul isn't in Europe, so Constantinople. Oh, half of it is. Yeah, yeah. But the, the, the proper half, where all the old yeah. stuff is. So, <laughs> no one cares about the other half. <laughs> across, across the Bosphorus. Indeed. indeed. Right, um, that may be Turkey done with as well. I think. Uh, yeah, yes, any I think more so. points to make on the destruction of the Kemalist system of secular democracy? Yeah. I suppose there's just the flip side of the um, the point that I was making is that if you only have cultural resistance to neoliberalism, but but no substantive, then you end up being an Erdogan or a Trump or whatever. Yeah. But if you only have sort of uh, technocratic uh, post-political administration and no cultural angle to your politics. Your politics isn't um, um, it's just sort of abstract mm. then you end up being Tony Blair. <laughs> they're sort of, they're, they're the, they have the opposite problem. Yes. That's, yeah. Although they both like style wars so you know it's going to be one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Opposites attract. Yeah. Oh, the other, the one, the one other thing I will say on Turkey is that, uh, as alluded to earlier, Turkey has historically been a secular democracy tending to the right, uh, and tending to the authoritarian, moderated by regular military coups. In, they are pretty much the only country where military coup is generally quite a good thing, because what tends to happen is the military step in when, uh, government gets too uppity, and, uh, event, after a brief interregnum, hand the power back to people. Yes, yeah. This, that's an unusual war. thing about Turkey is that they um they they have military clues quite regularly, mm. and they usually end up being quite a good thing. <laughs> that's not normal. Certainly, I mean, normally military coup means you're going to get a military dictatorship. It doesn't really mean that in Turkey, or at least not, only for a couple of years. <clears throat> I mean, certainly, the Turkish military is no bastion of liberal socialism, but they oh, no, they, no, no. they they tend to be a check on proper right wing authoritarian dictators mm. as much as. On one occasion, I think, which was less good. But yeah, yeah, there, there's a resonance there with a lot of um, with, with some Arab countries mm. where their military functions a little bit differently to what we imagine a military does in the West. Well, like in in Egypt yeah. during the Arab Spring, the military was instrumental in getting rid of the dictator. It didn't turn out that well in the end, but um, that wasn't necessarily because the military um, installed a normal sort of junta type thing. No. Although they have now. It's because the Islamists won the election and whatever. Yeah. Oh, but, but, but this is actually quite an interesting point. Um, because basically most of the time when you have a successful revolution, it's because you get the military on the side. I mean, mm. it was only the case in, it was certainly the case in Russia. It was only once the Bolsheviks won over the sailors and the, uh, the soldiers, uh, based in Petrograd that they were able to take power without that. Oh, that that's a slightly different thing in that they got, that, that was a mutiny rather than the military command turning against the government. That is true, yeah. But, I mean, the, the principle is kind of the same. Unless you can win over, you know, armed force to your side, you're usually a bit scuffled. It's definitely the case mm. across the Arab Spring. I mean, basically the yeah, only yeah. Arab Spring countries which, in which the dictator fell quickly were those in which um, a significant portion of the military defected. Um, 
really no serial mm-hmm. decent portions of it, but sadly not the majority, so the sad remains. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That's gone well. The final story is one that you put on this, so what do you want to talk about? Oh, yes. Yeah, this is just sort of um, a little bit of a feel-good story, really. Mm. <laughs> um, Jeremy Corbyn uh, had a speech at Glastonbury. He did. To 120,000 people or so. Ooh. It was one of the biggest crowds at the festival, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the pyramid stage. Yeah. yeah, this kind of this kind of speaks to what I was saying before about how um, uh, uh, cultural resistance without any substance makes you Erdogan. But if you don't have, if you just have this kind of cynical distance, pure wonkiness and whatever, then you're Tony Blair or Ed Miliband or Ed Miliband or Barack Obama. This is something that I noticed with um, Americans who've been commenting on this. Because Americans are interested in Jeremy Corbyn, who knew that? Um, that they've seen this kind of thing before. They've seen an inspiring speaker come along and say that they're going to change things and and bring about more equality and whatever, um, and then been very disappointed with Obama. Yeah. So they want to see his policies. Yeah. But the thing is, Corbyn has the policies as well. He does. He does. Yeah, Obama was a real shame. That's what just pretending. Yeah, yeah. Although the thing is that it was. Looking back, the signs were there before he got elected. Mm, that's very true. Because his policy platform was not like Bernie Sanders. Oh, God. It was, yeah. No, we were... He had a lot of very, very good rhetoric, but um, his policies were actually not that good. Yeah, and also, um, I think I think just because they're coming out of the Bush era, anything seemed, you know, fantastic, because yeah. we thought at that point that George Bush would be, George W. Bush would be the worst president America would ever have. <laughs> How wrong! Yes, a, a little bit like uh, Blair coming out of the um, the Thatcher Reagan years. Thatcher yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, but, uh, yes, people were just so sick of the Tories by that point that they were willing. It's just like anything. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn at Glastonbury is a real event, I think, because it it demonstrates, as you say, his ability to 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 bring that kind of. Charisma politics, which is missing, is missing from mm. Miliband, but also it's it, symptomatic of the engagement of a whole new generation of young people with politics. You know, the high turnout in, relatively high turnout for young people in the 2017 election, um, which itself was partially conditioned by a relatively high turnout for the referendum, um, mm. and most of those new voters from both the referendum and 2017 went to Labour. And I think the fact that Jeremy Corbyn can give a speech to a rapturous applause at Glastonbury in front of 120,000, mostly fairly young, um, relatively affluent as well if they're at Glastonbury because the tickets aren't cheap, but it speaks to the engagement of a generation who previously had been switched off in politics. And I think that bringing those people into the fold is... Even if Jeremy Corbyn doesn't become Prime Minister, I sincerely hope he does, but even if he doesn't, I think that will go down as a, as a massive legacy because all the statistics show that once you vote once, and particularly if you manage then to vote a second time, you pretty much tend to go on to vote at every election from that point onwards. Mm-hmm. And so his engagement of this entire generation of people will have an impact for decades to come. 
And I think that is a massive legacy. Um, mm. And there's still room for improvement, of course. The detail oh, could be higher. Um, we want to get it up. It would be lovely if it was uh, in the same ballpark as over 65s or even higher than that, because then yeah. we, you know, we'd get a Labour government. But... Mm. Like what the French elections have. They have consistently turned out in the 70s. Or... Yeah. We got very near that. I think it was right right near 70%. It was, yeah, 69%. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember where you planned it from. It went up. The people were talking about 72% at one point, but um, yeah. that didn't happen. There was a point someone made um, <coughs> uh, about uh, uh, that Corbyn quoted that poem. Yes. Um, um, uh, um, uh, Shelley, that was yeah. it. Arise like lions after slumber in unvanquishable number. Shake your chains to earth like dew which in sleep had fallen on you. Ye are many, they are few. Mm. It is quite good. It is brilliant. Yeah. Well, Peter Shelley was um, obviously Mary Shelley's husband, and yes, he yeah. was involved in kind of like the, the radical movement. Um, what was then the kind of the radical liberal uh, movement in in Britain and across Europe? And he was younger. I mean, obviously Mary mm. Shelley herself was the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, so they were all kind yeah. of in that um, milieu of radical liberals at the end of the. 18th that poem was written about um a, a, a non-violent protest being um uh, charged by cavalry mm. um while they were protesting for the vote i think i can't remember yeah, something like that um yeah but someone made the point that there is this large body of of literature and poetry and and songs and whatever that we have on the left uh, but people don't really seem to know very much about it or 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 use it very much whereas on the right they do have all of that mm. they have you know royalism and flag waving and they can quote winston churchill and margaret thatcher who both got big state funerals and whatever um but we can actually match that on the left if we're not afraid to dig into our our our, our past we can more our... oh, every yeah, churchill there you know there's 10 George Orwells. Mm. you know mm. we can we can we can match it and then some Yes, this speaks to what we were talking about earlier. With the um, we're starting to get this re-emerging movement of international cooperation and whatever, and these poems are are you can they can be used by anyone who speaks the language, yes. which is um, a lot of people. Yes, and people do that poem, uh, the Shelley one, is <coughs> uh, is is quoted in 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 rallies and trade union pickets and whatever in America, in Australia, all all over the world. Yeah. We need to remember, I think, the revolutionary past, where the tradition of the left comes from. And that's why, mm. you know, as a historian, I'm biased, but that's why I think studying the history of the socialist movement is so important, because mm. we can then remember um, that we do have a tradition that that we come from. It's not just the right with, as you say, their flags and pageantry and whatever. Yeah. And if it's if it was more well known, um, it would be more easy to point to. You know, that's what we are, yeah. and so thereby be able to differentiate ourselves both from um, sort of third-way Blairist liberalism and from sort of the Soviet system that everybody knows about. Which is, if, if you say I'm left in a way that I also have some criticisms of capitalism, people will say, "Oh, are you, are you a Stalinist then?" Because people have heard of Stalin, mm. but they haven't heard of this kind of movement that is actually analogous to what we're trying to do here. 
Rosa Luxemburg. Yes. Yeah. Put Rosa Luxemburg's face on the ten euro note. Hmm. <laughs> That's what we want. If we can achieve that, then that victory is the will goal. be assured. <laughs> victory will be assured. Hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it 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 makes sense when we're starting to break through of a sort of ideological hegemony where these ideas are unthinkable, that culture and art and whatever will follow with it as well. If you, um, when new ideas are coming onto the stage, the, the whole um, sort of cultural background follows it. Yeah, definitely. definitely. So it's a very positive sign that that's starting to happen now. It means that this, this change goes quite deep, I think. That's about all I have to say on that. Likewise. Likewise. Any other business? Um. <laughs> I, don't think I so. might leave the paper rustling in just for a laugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right then. Is there anything else? I don't, I don't. I don't think I have anything more I want to say. You've been listening to Revolutionary Dispatches. Thank you, comrades, for your time and attention. Viva la Revolution. Thank <laughs> you.